0: If you look at the big questions of humanity, there are no answers outside the scriptures and the gospel. We have in the truths of the gospel the keys to human freedom and dignity and going forward. We should be the most confident, humble always, but the most confident. In other words, God is greater than all.
1: Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. The world can be a confusing place to live in, and so what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity so that you can face the chaos of our world with wisdom, integrity, and courage. We've got a great episode lined up for you today. I had the incredible privilege of speaking to one of my heroes, a guy that I've been following for a long time who has really influenced my life and thought, uh, a scholar by the name of Oz Guinness. Uh, We had a great conversation talking about his newest book coming out, and we went over a wide range of topics related to uh, history, freedom, uh, scripture, and Christian witness in America today. Oz Guinness, like I said before, is an incredible scholar. Uh, Oz is an author and social critic. He is the great, great, great grandson of Arthur Guinness, who was the Dublin brewer. He was born in China. Uh, during World War II, where his parents were medical missionaries, he was a witness to the climax of the Chinese Revolution in 1949 and was expelled with many, many other foreigners in 1951 and returned to Europe, where he was educated in England. He completed his undergraduate degree at the University of London and his DPhil in the social sciences from Oriel College, Oxford. Oz has written or edited more than 30 books, including some of his mo- most popular being The Call, a Free People's Suicide, and Carpe Diem Redeemed. His latest book that you'll get to hear about on the podcast today is The Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith and the Future of Freedom. Like I said, this was just an incredible uh, privilege and opportunity that I got to have to talk with Oz about his newest book in this episode. It was really helpful and inspiring for me. I'm sure that it will be for you as well. While you're here, would you consider subscribing to this podcast if you have not already? Uh, Whether you're watching this on YouTube or listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, or wherever else, subscribe to the podcast so that you can get all of our future episodes automatically uh, in your podcast inbox. Would you also consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you're watching or listening to this? Whenever you leave us a good rating and review, that really helps us to get the word out to other people about this show. Like I said, I love this conversation that I got to have with Oz. I think that you're going to love it too. And so, without any further delay, let's jump into my conversation with Oz Guinness. Oz Guinness, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Aaron. A real pleasure
1: to be on with you. Well, it is a pleasure to get to talk to you today. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, it's been—I've been so excited about it. Uh, I've been reading your books, following your talks for. Uh, several years now. You've had a huge influence on me. So I just want to thank you for being with us today. Oh, thank you. We're here today to talk about your new book that's coming out. uh, Well, as of the day of this recording, about two and a half weeks. I think we're about two and a half weeks from the publication of your newest book, which is called The Magna Carta of Humanity. Uh, As soon as I saw that title, I was interested. Um, Let's go ahead and talk about it. Uh, Tell us about what inspired you to write this book first. Before we get into the content, what is it that inspired you to write this book, and what's the meaning behind that title, The Magna Carta of Humanity?
0: Well, this is my third book on American freedom, Free People's Suicide, Last Call for Liberty, and this one. And this one's more constructive. If you look at the present American crisis, I argue the deepest roots, there are many others, is the difference between the American Revolution rooted in the Hebrew Scriptures and the French Revolution rooted in the French Enlightenment. And I think if you go back to Exodus and Deuteronomy and their understanding of freedom, you truly have the Magna Carta of humanity. So I argue that this is the once and future key to freedom in the sense Without it, you don't understand the American Revolution. And without it, you don't solve the present crisis and move forward to something solid. Now, Magna Carta, obviously I'm English. Magna Mm -hmm. Carta is symbolic of that first great moment when there was a limit to royal power. And one of the key things today, is there a limit to the abuse of power?
1: Excellent. And so... You're in writing this book. It seems as though one of—I haven't been able to to read the book yet, but in pieces that I've been able to get, I have it pre-ordered. I can't wait for my copy to come in. But it seems as though one of the things that inspired you and that you're trying to confront, and what you've already said, is uh, being your third book on American freedom or liberty, uh, is that you seem to discern that there is a threat to freedom. In America today. Uh, what threats do you think Americans face to their freedom today?
0: Well, if we had longer, and this is only one of the two major threats, I would say there are two. And I put the present situation like this in three words, revolution, oligarchy, or homecoming. Now, as re- revolution is what I'm describing in this book. The radical left, we can get into that and all that it's meant. Oligarchy, you've seen over the last few decades the consolidation and concentration of power, political, bureaucratic, academic, in the media, woke business now, and so on. So just as you've had one-party faculties in many universities, one-party newsrooms, one-party states like California, so the danger is that you will have one-party national politics. And that will be the end not only of the republic, that will be the end of democracy, properly understood, and the arrival of what the Greeks would call oligarchy, a ruling class hanging on to its own power.
1: So is the threat necessarily from there just being one party in power or does it have to do more with the uh, ideas that are being held by a certain party or the other? Because I assume that because as an example, you said the radical left and one uh, one party in uh, California. But there's also a good bit more of one party in Alabama, for example. Uh, So would an oligarchy of the other side uh, also be a problem or does it have to do more with the worldviews and ideas that are behind the parties in power?
0: Well, it could be either party. And certainly, I I live in Washington, you have a certain establishment, doesn't matter whether you're Republican or Democrat, you're really more in terms of the maintenance of the present status quo, and so on. So no question, it could be either party. But think of the revolution option, and we need to talk about that. That's the content of the book. Mm -hmm. When you see the oligarchy coming closer In other words, traditional liberalism has been undermined. It had no real basis apart from the scriptures. And as it's become more and more hollow, traditional liberalism has become increasingly oligarchic and therefore open to the radical left. So the greatest danger is the convergence of the radical left and the progressive oligarchy, which would be much more the Democrats than the Republicans. So although you're exactly right, it could be either.
1: Mm-hmm. And it seems as though this revolution that you're describing is a little bit different than maybe what we would imagine in terms of other revolutions we've seen in other nations, Even maybe even to a certain extent, the French Revolution, where the revolution was uh, started by the masses and then moved up to take over the reigning power. Uh, by pointing and starting with oligarchy, it seems as though you're talking about a revolution uh, that's that's already taking place within the realms of power and then working its way down into the lower parts of the culture. Is that a right assessment, or am I misunderstanding you?
0: Uh, let's pick up the big, big picture. You know, there are five major modern revolutions. The English, 1642. The American, 1776. The French, 1789. The Russian, 1917, and the Chinese, 1949. Those are the big ones. The first two look different in that one succeeded, the American, and one failed, it's called in England, the Mm -hmm. lost cause. But actually those two are close because they both came out of the Hebrew Scriptures through the Reformation, and that's the key thing. Whereas the French, the Russian, and the Chinese are anti-Christian, anti-religious, and anti-clerical, and so on. And so they are essentially secularist with an animosity to all religions. So Solzhenitsyn, for example, said that the Marxist hostility to faith is far deeper than its economics, and we need Mm. to recognize that. Now, of course, when we look at the French Revolution, which is the fountain of all the other ones on that side, it only lasted 10 years in France, 1789 to 1799. And Napoleon stepped in as a dictator and said the revolution is over. But while it was over in France, it has been like a volcanic explosion which has, with its lava flows, flowed out ever since and still flowing. The first great Lava flow is not actually what we think of, Karl Marx. It was what's called revolutionary nationalism in France, Italy, Greece, even the rise of secular Zionism. And, of course, Hitler was a great admirer of the French Revolution and national socialism. The second great lava flow is Karl Marx, although it wasn't the 19th century, it was the 20th. So you have revolutionary socialism, which is communism, the Russian and the Chinese revolutions. What we're seeing now, this is the heart of my book, is what I call revolutionary liberationism, sometimes called cultural Marxism or neo-Marxism or even Western Marxism and sometimes user-friendly Marxism. Mm. But this is quite different. It's not rooted in economic determinism. It's rooted in cultural dominance, and you go back to thinkers like Antonio Gramsci in the 1920s, living and dying in jail under Mussolini, figuring out why Marx was wrong. And his ideas were picked up by the so-called Frankfurt School from the 20s through to the 60s, and of course, as you know, the key man over here was Herbert Marcuse, who in many ways was the godfather of the new left. Well, at the end of the 60s, in 67, 68, and this is a very key year, he and a German radical called Rudi Deutscher called for a long march through the institutions. And people need to understand that today because they realise that, all the, I first came here in 68, Martin Luther King assassinated, Senator Robert Kennedy assassinated. A hundred American cities were ablaze, far more than last year. Mm. But the radicals knew they wouldn't win in the streets. They had to do a long march incrementally to win the high schools, colleges, universities, the press and the media, and of course, above all, the culture industries, they called it Hollywood and entertainment, and then sweep round, having won the cultural gatekeepers, and then you win the whole culture. So people today are fascinated and alarmed by things like cancel culture or speech codes and things like that, but they actually flow out of the Long March and its triumph over 50 years. They've done it, and we're paying the price. Now, a very key final moment in that progression was in the early 2003, around there, when super funders like George Soros says, we could put billions of money now into an ever-swarming, ever-morphing pop-up protest movement. Give them different names and so on, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, and you could have an incredibly powerful popular movement. That's what they've done. And so in many ways, the republic, let's be clear, is on its last legs. Mm. Democracy yet, the republic, that's different. And that was the biblical restoration, uh, American Revolution notion of ordered freedom. It's on its last legs. Yes. That's what I'm arguing in the book.
1: Yeah. So one thing that I'm hearing as I'm listening to you is that there are two very different ideas of freedom. If we can just take a couple steps back to something very basic, and that there are two competing, and one of them gaining more ground, one of them winning right now, two different ideas of freedom. Uh, as a side note, before I have you explain that a little bit more, you mentioned the seven revolutions. And for our audience who may not know, you actually lived through one of those five. revolutions. Oh, five. So five, five, sorry, five. Uh, you lived through one of those revolutions.
0: I was a seven year old in the Chinese Revolution in 1949. And I was intrigued many years later, when I was doing my doctorate at Oxford, I met Sir Isaiah Berlin, a great Jewish philosopher of freedom. And as we were talking, I discovered he'd been a seven-year-old in the Russian Revolution. And I was a seven-year-old in the Chinese Revolution. He was a lot older than I was, of course. Mm -hmm. But we were comparing notes. And what was amazing is we both agreed that the English-speaking revolutions were fundamentally different and that nobody thought that America would be overtaken by radical socialism because in those days, nearly 50 years ago now, it was considered that Americanism, the American dream and all that, was the surrogate for radical socialism. So you'd never see it here. But, of course, Mm -hmm. now you have, which is... Now, the symptom that the American Revolution is on its last legs. So you take President Biden talks about restoring the soul of America, or former President Trump used to talk about make America great again. But you notice neither of them say what made America great in the first place. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: In contrast to President Trump, it was not the military, and it was not the economy. America is a nation by intention and by ideas, and the deepest of those ideas come from the Hebrew Scriptures, from what we call the Old Testament.
1: And so because of these ideas, what is the great difference in the view of liberty? And I think you've already used the term ordered liberty or ordered freedom. What is the difference in the views of liberty between the American Revolution and the French Revolution, if you're going to use those two Mm -hmm. as our... You know, for, for comparison and contrast, what's the different view of freedom in these views? And what's the difference? What's, how is freedom changing in its view in America today?
0: Let's start wider. The fundamental differences are almost across the board. So different sources. I mentioned one comes from the Bible, Sola Scriptura. The 17th century was called the biblical century. And people were fascinated with what they called in the 17th century the Hebrew Republic. So one idea comes from the Bible, the other comes from the French Enlightenment, Rousseau, Voltaire, and so on. Mm. A second huge difference is their view of humanity, their anthropology, put technically. The biblical one, because of sin, is immensely realistic. And that's the origin of the separation of powers and checks and balances. Why? Human power will always go wrong. The powerful not only oppress the weak, they corrupt themselves, the powerful. And you could go on down the line, whereas the French Revolution is utopian. Man is born free and everywhere in chains. Remove a chain or two, sexually, politically, or whatever, and we'll all be free, happy, and fulfilled. Nonsense. And you can see as you go down the line that the oppression never ends on the left. And the revolutions never succeed. Now you've raised the deepest one of all, which is freedom. Lord Acton put it very simply: you have two views of freedom. Either freedom is the permission, the, sorry, the permission to do what you like, or the power to do what you ought. Mm. that was in Exodus, freedom is covenantal; it's within a framework. It's freedom within a framework. You know, the Puritans and the early Americans called it federal liberty because, you know, the word federal doesn't mean Washington, D.C. and things like the feds. That's a distortion. It comes from the Latin word fetus, which meant covenant. Mm. In other words, you had a covenantal freedom, freedom within a framework, and that's the crucial difference. Now, Isaiah Berlin, whom I mentioned earlier, you know his famous distinction the two sides of freedom, negative and positive. Negative freedom is freedom from. No one under another power is truly free. You have to have negative freedom. You might be under a bully or under a terrible husband or a colonial power. You're not free. You need negative freedom, freedom from. That's only the beginning, though. And American freedom begins and ends there, libertarian freedom. Get the government off my back. Don't tread on me and all this stuff. Not in my backyard, you don't. It's negative freedom. Mm -hmm. Whereas biblical freedom is negative. They were freed from Egypt, but it's freedom from plus freedom for, or Mm -hmm. freedom to be. Now, of course, to have positive freedom, you've got to have three things, truth. Because you've got to know who you are, what you're free to be. You need truth, and character, and a way of life that supports that freedom. Whereas negative freedom, by itself, libertarian freedom, is not interested in that. That's why it never lasts. So there's a fundamental difference over freedom.
1: Absolutely, and so, and I think whenever you read history and you read about the founders and their ideas, that this idea of positive freedom becomes very clear that that this is absolutely how they thought Uh, you can read their letters and whenever they were uh, dreaming about the nation they were trying to build is that they would uh, they were achieving freedom for uh, for citizens who would pursue virtuous lives uh, and use their freedom to build their families and communities and even the nation as a whole in the way that they ought to Uh, not simply just uh, an absolute libertarian view that they would be able to pursue whatever desires that they had uh, without you know, government and other power stepping in. No, you're
0: exactly right. In an earlier book, I called this the golden triangle of freedom. Freedom requires virtue. Virtue requires faith of some sort, and faith of any sort requires freedom, religious freedom, and so on. And rather like the uh, uh, triangle it just goes round and round and round and round Freedom mm-hmm. virtue and so on the framers were immensely realistic because they ransacked history in order to defy history and they looked at all the republics and other forms of government that failed and they tried to set up a, a way that was different mm-hmm. and sadly among many Americans don't understand what they were trying to do and many of them reject what they've done
1: yeah i know that there is in, in the revolution that we're seeing today and and on the radical left there's a very very uh anti-historical strain or or maybe is maybe isn't I, the right term isn't anti-historical as much as it is uh revisionist history mm-hmm. uh but a desire to paint the founders in the most negative terms possible uh and to try to rewrite Uh, what the founding of our nation was all about, and what ideas drove it, and so on. How do you respond to certain efforts that you see in our culture today like those, uh, for example, the 1619 Project and others that try to revise American history and teach people something that is not accurate to uh, the founders, who they were, and their ideas?
0: Wow. Big question, Aaron. (laughs) We've got to look at the whole 1619 project and their view of history. And then I think it's important, especially for those who are so followers of Jesus, to look at the notion of history itself Mm -hmm. and why it's important. In fact, let me begin there. You know, the rabbis say, what did Moses talk about the night of the Passover? 430 years and tonight they're going free. But did he talk about freedom? No. No. They're going to the promised land, the land of milk and honey out of slavery. Did he talk about the promised land? No. The rabbis say, what did Moses talk about? Three times he talked about children
1: Hmm.
0: and how to tell the story to children. Because the story we tell to ourselves and to our children is the key to identity, who we are, and continuity, so we can keep the transmission going strongly. Or Rabbi Sachs puts it this way, if there's any project, of course the church is an example or a nation like America is another example, if any project takes more than a single generation, you have to have schools and you have to have history. That's so obvious. If you don't, faith and freedom collapse. Now, make that practical. The church has abandoned what used to be called catechism. Mm -hmm. Sunday schools, by and large, are pathetic now. But the country, America, has abandoned civic education. In other words, teaching what it is to be American and the American story. Now, that leads into your main point, 1619 Project, or the ghastly history of, say, Howard Zinn and his view of America. The, the The difference here is, is slavery which is evil? Again, we should go deeper. If you look at human history, slavery is the norm. Almost everywhere, because of hierarchical power, slavery is the norm. Abolition is the novelty. And who were the reformers who brought in the abolition of slavery? Champions like Bartolome de las Casas or John Woolman, the Quaker in Philadelphia, or William Wilberforce in England. And my ancestors were friends and supporters of William William, William Wilberforce. In other words, Christians are behind abolition and the reform of slavery. And we've got to be very clear about that. We are the champions. But in America, clearly, it was very wrong at the very start. Mm -hmm. Now, was it the original sin? So Adam and Eve are created and they sin. Or was it the original DNA? 1619 Project says it's the DNA, in which case you scrap the entire American experiment The American Revolution was wrong per se. That is very radical. I think far better, like, say, William Mobile did, he pleaded with Thomas Jefferson and later James Monroe for a concert of benevolence, as he put it, to stand against slavery, the English-speaking people, against slavery, and Jefferson turned him down, sadly. You may know that at the time of the Revolution, it was obvious to Europeans and to Christians that this was Hypocrisy,
1: You
0: know, Samuel Johnson, the first dictionary and so on, he made the famous remark, I'm not exactly quoting quoting exactly, he said, why is it that those who are yelping about freedom are the drivers of Negroes?
1: Mm.
0: In other words, a continent away, you could see this was evil and it was thoroughly hypocritical. But, of course, in the biblical understanding, if things are hypocritical and evil, And sinful, they should be repented of and there should be restoration. So you come to yet another example, often takes here something far more current George Floyd. There's an agreement almost across the board, terrible injustice. No disagreement over that. The question is, how do you tackle it? And that's where the gospel's answer and the radical left on, so go entirely different directions.
1: Hmm. Interesting. So you've written before, and we've even talked about a little bit here, the ideas of ordered liberty and that, uh, that golden triangle for mm-hmm. liberty. Uh, what relevance do those ideas, now that we've brought them up some, what relevance do those ideas have to this book, the Magna Carta of Humanity? How would you uh, say that those ideas are connected?
0: Well, this book is much more constructive. The previous books I wrote were basically analytical and, in that sense, critical of things that were crazy, with some positive things, like we just mentioned, the golden triangle and so on. Mm -hmm. But this book is based on some of the defining features of what I call the Sinai revolution. I mentioned earlier transmission, a very key part at Sinai, and the People forming of the Jewish nation was the notion of transmission, how you pass it on. Their festivals or their periods of renewal and restoration, there's an immense amount to learn there. But maybe the heart of the book two chapters, one on covenant and one on tackling injustice. Covenant is the key to constitution. Many Americans don't realize the Constitution is a national secular form of covenant. Let's take the history of the Christian Church. When Rome declared the church official, and Rome became officially Christian, not Constantine, but Theodosius in 380. What the church did was copy. Greek ideas, and Roman structures. And Roman structures were hierarchical. You had the Caesar, the consuls, the senators, and so on. And the church had the pope and the cardinals and the bishops and so on. And it was a Catholic layman, the famous statement, we all know all power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm -hmm. Lord Acton, who said that, was talking about his own church, the Catholic Church. In other words, there's a corruption of power as soon as you have a hierarchy of power. The Reformation, sola scriptura, back to the Bible, said that was not the biblical way, and they went back to Exodus, and Deuteronomy. You don't have hierarchical power. You have covenantal. That's quite different. And so that chapter sets out the leading features of covenantalism. For example, Aaron, one of the three features is freely chosen consent.
1: Mm.
0: So the Lord puts out the covenant through Moses, the terms, and three times in Exodus and after that, it says, all that the Lord says we will do. Michael Walzer of Princeton calls that an almost democracy. Hmm. Freed, that is the origin of the consent of the governed. And you go on down the line. In other words, in the covenantal system, you have collective responsibility and you have a limit to the abuse of power. For For, for example, in the politics of Exodus, the kings are only described negatively. They mustn't worship other gods. They mustn't have too many wives. They mustn't drive. What they do positively is not described. You have a very different system, all surrounding the fact that the whole people are responsible, love your neighbors yourself, etc., etc., and that there's a limit to the potential for the abuse of power. Now that's behind the American experiment. And we've got to go back, explore those things, and recover them again today. Mm.
1: Uh, So how how do we connect those ideas, or or how do we retrieve those ideas and then apply them to where we are in America today? These ideas that we see, these features that you bring up in the Exodus and Deuteronomy narratives, and just if we take covenantalism uh, as the example— how do we retrieve that idea and then and then apply it to our situation? Because I think a lot of people might push back, saying that it sounds like you're trying to force the Bible onto a secular nation or to a secular people or I mean, just saying like people of, uh, of of other religions who don't accept the Bible. And so, how do we how do we engage the culture when we might try to bring and and apply biblical ideas to it?
0: Well, remember, I've just said freely chosen consent. That is the absolute principle. And behind that, you have what the Jews call the self-limitation of God. And we evangelicals understand the same thing. In other words, God is totally free and sovereign, but he limits himself. He never invades the human heart unless we let him in. You know, the Jews make a huge amount of that. That's the heart and soul of freedom of conscience. Now, evangelicals say, we don't. well, think of Holman Hunt's painting The Light of the World, famous painting, Jesus knocking at the door, and as many preachers point out, no handle on the outside. It has to be opened from the inside. And, of course, a million evangelical sermons have made that point. Just as I am, I've got to let him in, and unless we let him in, God doesn't come in. He respects us, and so on. So let's be clear. There's no coercion. Coercion is the hierarchical way, and that's the abusive power way, and it's quite wrong. In other words, in terms of discourse, that means we've got to persuade. Mm. We've got to argue, do people value freedom? Well, which vision of freedom, which model of freedom, which way of freedom really gives you freedom this way? So we've got to understand it and know how to argue for it. The trouble is, most evangelicals don't. You have a leading voice today, I won't mention his name, out in the West Coast, saying that he's against freedom of conscience and religious freedom because it gives freedom for idolatry and atheism. Of course, it does. Lord gives freedom. those he's created. Now, tragically, the Catholic Church in 380 went for hierarchical power, not covenantal. But fortunately, more and more Catholics are coming back to a biblical view, which is good. But then you take, I'm an evangelical. Many evangelicals only look at the New Testament, not the old. That's crazy. You had the pastor who famously two years ago said we must." unhitch the new from the old Mm -hmm. that's the marcionism It's appalling it's not only wrong it's stupid so you take great notions like human dignity genesis 1 or freedom exodus go on down the line we dare not abandon the old testament the hebrew scriptures and we've got to explore those now i think many christians haven't no a clue about these great elemental truths we've become oh. far too individualistic exodus yes it's it's a forerunner of my freedom my salvation no it's not it's communal it's collective it's more than political but it includes the political and so on so first we've got to understand it and then Believing, as certainly I do, and many others have done, that it is the key to the world going forward. We can argue it in the public square, persuasively, not coercively.
1: So I think that yeah, so as I'm listening to this, I'm hearing how one of the things, or if not the key attribute of covenantalism that makes it uh, beneficial or could be beneficial for our society today is freedom of consent. And that it is not about coercion. But I imagine that someone who would be more on the side of the radical left would push back against this and say, well, hold on. We're the people who believe that no one should have authority over what you choose to do with your body, uh, you know, or with with you and another person's body. That we are the people who believe, you know, X, Y and Z about you having as much liberty and freedom to do whatever you desire Uh, That's our position. We're the people of no coercion. Uh, But it seems as though what you're alleging is that uh, this revolution that is coming about, uh, like the lava flow of the French Revolution that you described, this lava flow that we see in America today is the side of coercion as opposed to covenantalism, which is about uh, consent, uh, uh, freely chosen consent. Uh, What is it about, or, or, or would you say that the left is the side of convert, uh, coercion, and what is it in their worldview that doesn't allow for uh, freely chosen consent?
0: Well, let's leave the biblical one out on one side for a moment and go back to the French Revolution. Coercion has been at the heart of it from the very beginning for a simple reason. As they see it, God is dead. Truth is dead. The operating principle is power. And as you know, that is the heart of postmodernism. That's the heart of the radical left. And while they may talk freedom, they always end in coercion. Always. And you can see that from the very beginning. The reign of terror or the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution. There's never, ever been freedom. As I said, the revolution never works and oppression never ends. Mm-hmm. See, I mean, take all sorts of examples today. Remember, though, that the sexual revolution started in the same place in Paris, the Palais Royal, that the political revolution and its ideas started. And the Duke of Orleans was the architect of some of the sexual revolution ideas. His mistress was called the Prince of the Prostitutes. And it was said that every desire you could possibly have you could find within the complex of cafes and galleries and so on in the Palais Royal. Now, when that was developed later by the Marquis de Sade and then later still by Wilhelm Reich, you know, who's the architect of our term, the sexual revolution in the 1920s, he's quite clear. They will never win until they overcome two authorities. One, the church, and two, parents. And you can see that they are dead set against us, and there's a coerciveness in what they're doing. And you can see it clearly. That parent in Canada who's in jail because he refuses to talk to his, I can't remember it's a daughter or son, by the sex they are, mm-hmm. and he's been put in jail by the Canadian government.
1: Yeah. And moreover, whenever you don't have a covenantal view of authority in society, then there's no higher authority over those in power that they themselves are accountable to. And so whenever they have no accountability that they have to uh, submit themselves to, then they can uh, coerce whatever vision of society they desire upon the population.
0: Yeah. Well, take, now you're talking the language of the cultural Marxists. If God is dead and truth is dead, there is only power. So as they put it, you analyze discourse to look for hegemony, dominance, and antagonisms. Who's the majority? Who's the minority? Who's superior? Who's the subaltern? Who's the oppressor? Who's the victim? And then, Using the victim, not as an individual, but as a pawn or a prop, you play a power game, weaponizing them to overthrow the status quo. But here's the point. You set up a conflict of powers that can only be resolved by what the Romans rightly called the peace of despotism. Hmm. In other words, one power so powerful that it can put down all other powers. Otherwise, you have endless conflict. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is totalitarianism. And we can see, you know, Nebo's idea, the bookends of history are authoritarianism and anarchy. Order with no freedom, the Tower of Babel, or freedom with no order, the conditions before the flood. Now, whenever you have a tendency towards anarchy, no one can live with anarchy. What Hobbes calls the state of nature, the war of all against all. So you automatically have a swing to the opposite, authoritarianism and totalitarianism today. And that's the danger. That's why American freedom, coming from the Bible, is so wonderful. It is ordered freedom, not Mm. freedom without order or order without freedom, but ordered freedom. And Americans have got to see the, the wonder of it. And understand it well enough to know how to argue for it and win people's hearts and minds. This is the better way. Or yeah. put it another way, biblically, Genesis 1 to 11 show the bookends, the extremes of history. And so in chapter 12, the call of Abraham is God's way a man, a family. And then, of course, in Exodus, a nation. And then through Jesus, a movement to bring in the whole world. So we should understand this, and this is good news. I would say it's the best news ever. Mm-hmm. But we're not coercing anyone. We've got to win hearts and minds.
1: And so, what I'm hearing in this is that there's a role for the church today from these ideas that you talk about in the Magna Carta of humanity and and in the vision for ordered liberty there is a crucial role for the church in society and culture. With America, like you said before, on its last leg of the republic, uh, and with all the ground that the radical left has already gained, uh, what role do you see for the church in this moment uh, in the 21st century?
0: Well, you know, at the time of the revolution, 95% or more of Americans came out of a Reformation background. Now, as this was their heritage, the scandal of the American church today is that we are still a huge majority, but we're uninfluential. And tiny groups, let's take our wonderful friends, the Jews. They are 2% of America, but they punch so much above their weight, intellectually, financially, culturally, and so on, Mm -hmm. that they have an incredible influence. And we who are a majority and we who are called to be salt and light are non-influential. In other words, the scandal of the church is we have let our Lord down, and we need revival and reformation and reawakening to be who we're called to be, salt and light. So we've got to get Christians off the back foot and off the defensiveness and off the total identification with politics and truly becoming salt and light in the whole of the culture, of course, mm-hmm. including politics.
1: Yeah, as you were saying that, one thing that was that was coming to my mind was the Great Commission and Jesus's command, uh, based upon His lordship, having received all authority in heaven on earth, mm-hmm. to His disciples to then go and teach everything that He had commanded, and how I think one of the reasons that we have such a weak witness in the broader culture uh, as evangelicals is that we've narrowed down his great commission to only being about sharing the gospel in terms of how to become a Christian, but then nothing else about what Jesus commanded about applying his Lordship to all of life and what it means to, uh, to truly live as an individual walking in righteousness and building our homes and businesses and schools and uh, neighborhoods around uh, his Lordship. And so um and so yeah, I couldn't help but thinking of that as you were talking about our our weak, weak witness today. And I think that that has to be a part of it, that we've um, weakened Jesus' Great Commission so much.
0: In other words, it's a failure of discipleship. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And above all, the notion of calling, you know, to Abraham "In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. As you said, the Great Commission for us. So it's a disgrace that we've made it something privately engaging and publicly relevant.
1: Yeah. So if anyone is feeling uh, a little bit hopeless or uh, pessimistic about the situation that they're in, I know that there's reason for hope. Uh, what would you give as that reason for hope? Why should Christians still have hope even in this time, uh for our lives and for the generations coming after us, which should be our where where should our hope come from?
0: Well, remember the reason we believe finally, as c s. Lewis often used to stress, the only ultimate reason to believe is that we know it's true now, if the Christian faith is true, it would be true, Aaron, if you were the last person in America to believe if the Christian faith were false. It would be false if every American believed it. In other words, if it's true, damn the polls. We read about the nuns no longer believing, or the younger generation, or what? Who cares about that? If it's true, we believe it because it's true. Now, I could go on from that. If you look at the big questions of humanity, there are no answers outside the scriptures and the gospel. We have in the truths of the gospel the keys to human freedom and dignity in going forward. We should be the most confident, humble always, but the most confident. In other words, God is greater than all. God can be trusted in all situations. Have faith in God. Have no fear. The gospel is good news. It's the best news ever. Move out with hope. So I'm often asked, how can you be hopeful and realistic or realistic and hopeful? The trouble is, in terms of realism, Americans, it's often psychological. Is the glass half full or half empty? Or it's, you know, the market, is is it bullish or bearish? And people are hopeful if the glass is half full and the glass today is half empty and the market is bearish not bullish in other words the church is the scandals the divisions the weakness the confusion no wonder people are giving up the faith because they, they've mixed it with culture if you look at the culture things are terrible but we believe because it's true god isn't nervous because of the situation we're in we need christians to remember the truth of the faith remember the lord Remember the good news of the gospel and move out with tremendous confidence. Amen to that. Aaron, I was born in China Mm -hmm. in World War II. When the Japanese invaded, they killed 17 million. We were in an area of north central China where we had the Japanese army attacking daily from one side with airplanes and so on the communists attacking from another side, and the nationalist army from a third side. And in the middle of this, there were locusts and a famine. And 5 million died in three months, including, sadly, my two brothers. We then moved to Nanjing, Nanking then. And we saw the beginning of the revolution and the reign of terror And as you know, overall, maybe 75 million were killed in China by Mao Zedong. But, you know, my first 10 years through those incredible times with death and destruction everywhere, I never saw my parents in anything but a quiet trust in God. Hmm. Now, it wasn't because the circumstances were good. They were appalling. My mother was a doctor. There was... People dying all around, no medicine, no food, cannibalism, people selling their children to have an evening meal. Terrible situation, but they knew the Lord, and you can have a quiet faith, whatever.
1: Wow. What a great testimony of faith and to the power of God working through faith. Well, you know, I hope, and I'm sure that you hope, that everyone who listens to this podcast goes and pre-orders your book purchases it because I think it's an important book and that we we need as many people to read it, but then also to apply it. And so if the one takeaway that somebody has from this podcast is something other than just purchasing the book, we want people to get the book. But if there's just one thing that somebody uh, does, applies to their life as a result of listening to this today, what would you like that to be?
0: I think to pray. Because we need a recovery of the supernatural and spiritual warfare as we take on some of the challenges of our time. So that's what I would say.
1: Great. And I would add to that as well. Prayer. Well, uh, I just want to thank you so much for spending your time with us today on the podcast for uh, providing so much helpful content and teaching. Uh, This has just been uh, a really excellent time uh, people can go and pre-order and, uh, and get the Magna Carta of Humanity wherever books are sold. Like I said, I've already got yeah, my... It, it is my, my, now. It's out it's, now. It is?
0: Yeah.
1: Okay, last that I looked, it was coming out on May 11th.
0: Well, that sounds... So,
1: awesome. Oh, okay. Well, great. Well, then uh, in that case, people can go and, and get their copy uh, delivered to them as soon as possible. So go and get a copy of uh, the Magna Carta of Humanity uh, to get all that great content you also have a website osguinness.com uh, mm-hmm. is a dot yeah dot com where people can go and learn about uh all the other books that you have teachings and so on so uh once again oz i just want to thank you so much for giving us your time today thank you for joining us on filter
0: real pleasure aaron thank you so much god bless
1: thanks for listening I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating interview. review. To catch up later from me, you can go to my website, aaronchamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to.